Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 13. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning, everybody. Um, pray with me before we go any further. Our Father, uh, we, we thank you for this, this morning, this beautiful, cold morning. And Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. Father, I pray that the gospel would be clear today. Um, I ask, Lord, that you would be with my mouth, that you would speak through me, that you would uh, make your word clear, that you would affect our hearts, Lord, that you would birth fresh uh, worship in us, Lord, that you would draw those who do not yet know you to you through this good news of the gospel, and that you uh, would save many today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Um. So as, as a young child, I had a very sensitive conscience, and I would frequently go to, um, go to my parents, my mom usually, and I would confess sin to them, just tell them the things that I had done wrong, and, um, and ask for their forgiveness. And um, my, my own uh, kids will do this. Now and I was having a conversation with them uh, this week, even just about the importance of maintaining that 
that sensitivity, that sensitive conscience, and that whenever we uh, rebel and then do not repent of it and don't confess it, don't bring it into the light, that every time that we do that, we are hardening our conscience. We're searing our conscience a little bit more. My own, uh, my own conscience became more and more seared as I got into middle school specifically. Um, the more times that I, I made a practice of sin and, and went my own way and did my own thing, but I didn't repent of that and didn't confess that, the more and more um, that I, I felt nothing when I sinned. The, the fact of the matter is God creates every human being with a conscience. The word conscience meaning the knowledge with knowledge. It's, it's the ability to know that we have a creator that we, uh, that we will answer to and that we uh, need to live according to his rules, his decrees. Um, God, our God, the creator, is a holy God, which which means that he's righteous, he's, he's pure, he's morally blameless. And because he's our creator, he gets to determine uh, the right way to live. He has determined uh, what is good and what is evil. And it's not for human beings to determine what's good and what's evil. It's for God to do. Um, and so we know this intuitively as kids and I, it's, it's interesting, I keep running into more and more people uh, outside of the church who have kids who are asking questions about God. Their kids are coming to the parents who, who don't believe in God, and they're asking questions because, why? They're not being taught it in school, they're not being taught it in their home, but intuitively they know there is a God that created them that they will answer to. And so these parents, unbelieving parents, are coming to maybe the only Christian that they know and saying, what do I tell them? And all of us are born with this knowledge. Um, we know that uh, sin is serious. The New City Catechism answers the question, what is sin, this way. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. I know that was a lot. Let me give you the, the shortened summary there. It is rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law. That is sin. And the penalty of sin is death. The result of sin is death. The consequence of sin is death. Separation from God, the life giver. The Bible is really clear about that. And so in the Old Testament, um, God gave to his chosen people, he gave to the Jewish people, the sacrificial system so that their consciences could be cleansed. And so the sacrificial system involved bringing a spotless lamb or a goat or a bull to a priest who would then um, sacrifice, kill that animal, spill that animal's blood. That animal would die in the place of the person for their sin as a substitute. 
um, they would slaughter this animal as a payment for the sins that, that they had committed. And in the sacrificial system, this would have to be done over and over again as long as someone lived. This elaborate and costly sacrificial system trained the Jewish people to see the severity of sin against a holy God. They learned that no sin goes unnoticed, that all sin deserves death, and that all sin must be atoned for or paid for. So, that is the backdrop going into the uh, passage that we're studying today in Matthew chapter 9. We need to kind of understand the way that uh, the Bible talks about sin, the way that the Jewish people think about sin in order to really understand this passage. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 9. Um, so Jesus gets into a boat, he crosses over and comes to his own city, to Capernaum. Not the city that he grew up in, but the city that he has now set up his home base for ministry in. So Capernaum is um, the north of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he set up his home base. So he comes there, and it says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, Matthew doesn't go into all of the details that, that Mark or Luke go into, but maybe you're familiar with this story. This is the story of uh, the, the friends who bring their, their paralyzed friend to Jesus on a mat, and, the, and there's so many people in the home that they can't get to him, and so they take their friend up on the roof somehow or another, and they dig through the roof, which would have been made of dirt and moss, maybe tile, and they lower their friend down with ropes right in front of Jesus as he's in the middle of teaching. That's the story here. And so it says, um, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. We're going to come back to that phrase, when he saw their faith. We're going to come back to that at the very end, because I, I want to really address that. But suffice it to say, their faith moved him to do what he did. Okay? Um, and we'll talk about why. But so he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So he, with compassion, with compassion, he looks at this man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, is that what they were bringing their friend to Jesus for? No? Were you awake? Is that what they're, is that what they're bringing their friend to Jesus for? No. Okay. No. Um, they're, they're bringing their friend to Jesus so that he could be healed. Right? And Jesus looks at this man with compassion, and he says, take heart, take courage, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't, he doesn't immediately heal the man. It's not the first thing he does. And it's, it's intentional that it's not the first thing that he does. Jesus is teaching us. Everything he does 
is intentional. He's teaching us something. And what he's teaching us is that this man's greatest need was not healing. He's teaching us that as as many things as this man needed, his greatest need, his ultimate need was not physical healing. His greatest and ultimate need was not um, employment, a way to provide for himself. His greatest need was not companionship. His greatest need was not a better education. His greatest need was, was not whatever, fill in the blank. He looks at this man and he gives him the most merciful, most compassionate gift he could possibly give him. Filled with love, Jesus, who loves perfectly, filled with love, looks at this man and he gives him forgiveness. And it tells us something very important. You see, the greatest problem in our lives, the greatest problem in our world is sin against a holy God. Jesus came to accomplish great things, chief among them being that he came to save us from our sins. It says in Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. And so the greatest problem in our world is sin against a holy God. Not oppression. Not poverty. Not hunger. Not abuse. Not every other form of injustice, not not any of that. While all of those are massively important to the heart of God, they are not the biggest problem in the world. They are not the ultimate problem behind every other problem. We don't we don't believe this oftentimes. Our, the ways that we pray betrays us. We pray so much for the alleviation of suffering and so little for the salvation of eternal souls that will be damned without Christ. You know, false gospels and The doctrine of demons slips into the church first by us getting the the most important things become secondary things. That's the way, that is the way that false gospels start. We take primary things, ultimate things, and we make them secondary things. We elevate some other thing above the problem of sin as the real issue that Jesus came to the earth. People who believe this way, they may not even explicitly say it, but you you see it in the 
the focus of their heart, their life, their prayers. Any teaching which turns the goal of the gospel into some other thing than Jesus saving people from their sins is a false gospel. The the scriptures are clear that there are wonderful, glorious, uh, trickle-down effects from this gospel, Jesus saving people from sins, right? These trickle-down effects could change the world. We, We are called to fight for the oppressed. We are called to help the poor. We, I mean, Jesus himself says, look, if, if, you don't, if you don't give water to a disciples in my name, if you don't visit them in prison, if you don't clothe the naked and feed the hungry, then you're proving that you're not even my disciple. He cares about these things. But they are trickle-down effects of the gospel. They are not the gospel. And when we replace the gospel, Jesus came to save sinners from their sin with the side effects or the trickle-down effects of the gospel, we are believing a false gospel. So yes, seek the welfare of your city. Pour yourself out for the poor. Bring justice to the oppressed. Visit those in prison and widows and orphans. But no, those things are not the gospel. The gospel is that God sent His Son to suffer and die in our place to forgive us of our sins. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Acts 3 26 says, get to it. It says that God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The greatest blessing of the gospel is the salvation, is our salvation from sin. Jesus looks at this man with all of his need and he gives him what he needs most first, forgiveness. He knew that without the forgiveness of sins, no healing could set him free or satisfy his soul. The church that de-emphasizes, and I I don't mean takes it away altogether, I just mean de-emphasizes the preaching of the gospel for in order to elevate some other side effect or trickle-down effect of the gospel, some form of mercy ministry above that has done the least merciful thing it could ever do. And Jesus will remove its lampstand and it will soon become nothing more than a philanthropic organization. 
So, have you, have you gotten the gospel confused with the side effects of the gospel, the trickle-down effects of the gospel? Do you remember that the best news in all the world is that God sent His Son in order to save us from our sins against Him? Second point from this passage. Look at verse 3 and 4. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Second point is this, Jesus is God, the one we sinned against. He's God, the one we sinned against. You know, the scribes, they rightly assess the situation in, in one sense. They said, this man is blaspheming. If Jesus were merely a man, it would have been blasphemy. But he is not. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Fully God and fully man. And only because he is fully God, truly God, can he forgive sins. Um, in, in Luke's account, in Luke 5, 21, it says that they, they look at the situation and say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. The offended party must be the one to forgive. And God is the one who is offended by our sin. The idea that Jesus could have been merely a good man, a good teacher, is completely insane. C.S. Lewis famously said that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. He couldn't have been a good teacher. Because of this very thing, he claimed to be God. No human being who is not God but claims to be God is a good teacher or a good person for that matter. And it was for this that he was crucified. Jesus said that he was God and that he was the only way to the Father. There were no other ways. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? In other words, to think of Jesus as anything less than God is evil. It's wicked. And many horrendous evils and cults have been born out of that lie. That, that Jesus is merely an angel. No, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus is God. To believe him to be any less is to believe evil. In fact, this lie that these 
religious leaders believed led to the greatest evil ever committed in human history, the murder of the Son of God. So, if he was God, then every word that he spoke was true and authoritative. And so, in verse 2, when he looks at this suffering paralytic and says, My son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. He is using his divine authority to pierce to the root of this man's suffering and of all suffering, which is sin. Our deepest needs are always spiritual, not physical. And therefore, they must be addressed by God who is spirit. And He cares. He cares very much about our physical needs. So don't mishear me. However, it doesn't change the truth, the fact that our deepest needs are always spiritual. Always. This world, as much as it matters, is passing away. The Bible says twice. 1 Corinthians, I think, and, and 1 John. This world is passing away. It's not going to last. It's temporary. And therefore, all suffering in this life is temporary. But the suffering of separation from God in hell is eternal. Hell is real. The judgment that's coming is real. Sin has real consequences. And that is why the gospel is such good news. If you don't, if you don't cherish the gospel, it is probably because you don't understand how bad the bad news is. He says, but that you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He's saying, look, I know that there's no visible evidence that this man's sins have been forgiven, so you're not sure if I could have done that. So let me give you something that you can't deny. And he heals the man. The healing physically serves. It serves to show the reality of the healing spiritually. You see, for Jesus, this was never confused. Spiritual needs always took precedent, always. Only God could have done what he did. Only God can undo paralysis or calm wind and waves or touch a person and make their, their fever go away or say a word and, and someone be healed somewhere else. Only God can do these things and only God can forgive sins. And Jesus Christ is God. Third point, Jesus 
the one that we've sinned against, came to rescue sinners. Look at, look at the rest of the passage. So this man rose and went home when the crowd saw it. They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, They said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, what does he mean by that? Because we know the Bible teaches no one is righteous that we are all sinners. So what does he mean by this? Jesus is making the point that he doesn't spend his time with those who think they are righteous, like the Pharisees and the scribes in the story. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus is frequently confronting the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and, and trying to, to show how their, their pride, their hypocrisy, is keeping them from the grace of God in their lives. They cannot believe that Jesus would associate with people like these, the tax collectors, the sinners. They can't imagine it because no other rabbi would have spent their time with these people. These people who seem like a lost cause. So, the question that we should be asking as we read this, the question I was asking myself as I was studying this passage, who are today's Pharisees and scribes? Who are today's tax collectors and sinners And it's really, it's not as simple as just picking groups of people. It's really not. That's not how God operates. You see, you you can't just look at the, oh, well, the Pharisees of today, that's the the religious leaders or that's the the people who, who go to church or the, uh, the tax collectors and the sinners, that's the drug addicts, that's that's homosexuals or that's uh, people who are stuck in alcoholism or whatever. Whatever you might think that you're going to take a group of people and lump them together and call those the, the, the sinners and tax collectors and call those the Pharisees. That's not how it works. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And so I want to look a little closer at this passage and say, What was it that drew Jesus to certain people, but others he confronted and he challenged and he kept at arm's length? What was it? So look at verse 9 with me. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, 
follow me. And he rose and followed him. Here's the first thing that we see. Jesus is drawn to those who will leave behind their past life to follow him. He is opposed to those who have no interest in following him. He is drawn to those who recognize their need for change. He is opposed to those who don't think there's anything wrong with them. Look at verse 10 and 11. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Second thing we can see is that Jesus is drawn to those who seek him out because they believe they need something he's offering. He is opposed to those who, like these Pharisees in this story, seek Jesus out in order to criticize him. In order to try and find some fault with him. Because they believe ultimately that they know better than Jesus. Right? Look at verse 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well or sorry, starting in 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We see that Jesus is drawn to the humble, to those who know they are guilty. And Jesus is opposed to the proud and think they're already righteous. He's drawn to those who know they need mercy and therefore show mercy to others. He is opposed to those who think their great sacrifices make them better than others. So these are the characteristics of those that Jesus is drawn to. And also, these are the characteristics of those who turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus. They're willing to leave behind their past life in order to follow Him. They recognize their need to change. They seek Jesus out because they believe He has something to offer that they need. They believe that He knows better than they do. They're humble. They recognize that they're guilty before God. They know they need mercy and are therefore merciful to others. So that's what we can learn from, the, from Matthew, from the sinners and tax collectors. What, what can we learn from Jesus in this story? From the example of Jesus, that, that he spent his time with the sinners and the tax collectors. I want to I show you that the reason he did this was because he, he never lost sight of the greatest problem in the world, which was our sin against a holy God. So the first thing we can learn from this example is that Jesus spent the bulk of his time with people who knew they were sinners and wanted to do something about it. He spent the bulk of his time with people who knew they were sinners and wanted to do something about it. 
He spent his time with people who were longing to know the truth and were willing to admit that they were broken, that they were sick, that they needed to change. The second thing we can learn from this example, Jesus was not concerned with keeping up appearances. Jesus was not politically correct. He was not. Uh Uh-oh. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were. They were slaves to people-pleasing because they feared man. And so the popular opinion controlled them. Whatever was politically correct controlled them. Listen to just three verses. Luke 20, 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Luke 22, 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. I mean, do you hear that? They don't lay hands on him because they fear the people. They're going to put him to death because they fear the people. I mean, no matter what they did, they were doing it motivated by this. They feared people. Mark 12, 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. I mean, whether they lay hands on him or don't, everything they're doing is motivated by fear of man. And Jesus was never motivated by it. Can you imagine living your whole life never once being influenced by the fear of another person's opinion? I can't even imagine it. But that's freedom. That is liberty. And so Jesus was not doing this or anything else that he did because he thought it would be popular with people. He was never controlled by the pressures of what was deemed correct by society or by the crowd. If Jesus had been influenced by political correctness or popular opinion, he would have never associated with these tax collectors. So let me ask you, who are you tempted to avoid because of the opinions of others, because of how it will look? Who are you tempted to avoid? Is it Biden supporters? (laughs) Drug addicts? Homosexuals? Or on the other end of the spectrum, is it the blue-collar Trump supporters? The uncultured rednecks? God doesn't look on the outward appearance. And He doesn't want us to. He wants us to spend our time with anyone and everyone who is open to the truth, who is looking for God no matter what category you might put them in, and no matter what anybody else might think about you hanging out with them. 
because God sees the ultimate problem in the world is sin against a holy God. So don't live to please the crowd. Befriend those who are hungry for the truth, regardless of what anyone thinks. That brings me to my last point. Jesus rescues sinners by grace through faith. Remember verse 2 that said, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. In uh, previous chapter, in, in Matthew 8, verse 13, Jesus says to the centurion, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Later on, we're going to read the story in chapter 9, um, verse 22, where Jesus looks at a woman and says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then again later on in verse uh, 29 to another person, he touches them saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. What is this about? Here's what we, what we can see. Our faith in Jesus is the conduit to his grace and power in our lives. Our faith in Jesus does not create grace and power, but is like a power cord that connects to another source and and brings power somewhere else. It is a conduit to God's grace and power in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is what saves us. Faith is the conduit that gets it to us. You see, when we recognize our sins and our desperate need for mercy, when we recognize that our greatest problem and the greatest problem in the world is our sins against a holy God, when we recognize that Jesus was not just a good teacher, not just any man, but he was God incarnate who came to deal with our greatest problem, when we believe that he came to rescue sinners among whom I am the worst, then what do we do? We do what Matthew did. We leave our past life behind us and we go with Jesus. That's what faith looks like in action. We do what the tax collectors and the sinners did. They go to Jesus knowing he has what I need. That is what faith in action looks like. We recognize I am sick and there is only one who can heal me, the great physician. We don't try to clean ourselves up or get better before we go to him. That is believing the same lie that the Pharisees and scribes believed, which was that they could achieve righteousness on their own, in their own strength. And we know we cannot, that righteousness comes as a gift through faith. Romans 3.22 says that we receive the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is a free gift. Jesus rescues us as an act of unmerited grace. This is why he came to die. The sacrificial system that was given to the Jewish people, it was all a sign It was all a pointer to the one who would come, the spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, who would die once for all time to perfectly cleanse the consciences of those who put their faith and trust in Him, who run to Him in their need. Jesus took our place on the cross. He satisfied the justice of God, took the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, canceled our debts against him. He took care of our greatest problem, sins against a holy God, wiped them away. There is no better news in all the world. And so if we recognize and admit our sin, if we turn away from it, confessing it. If we believe in Jesus, we will be saved. And he will look at you and say, take heart, son, take heart, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And if you do, if you do that, then Jesus commands every person who does that to be baptized as our first act of obedience as your profession of faith to the watching world, that you're not ashamed of Jesus. And if you believe this gospel and you haven't been baptized, I want to invite you to do that. I want you to come talk to me after the service. Let me know that you want to be baptized, and we will baptize you. As we close, I want to think about this song. Um, The band can come on up. We're, gonna, we're actually going to go back into that song that we just sang, Come Ye Sinners. And there's a line in there that I particularly love. I love the whole song, but I love the line that says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you've never come to Jesus, don't wait Today is the day of salvation. Run to him for healing. Run to him for rescue. And if you're a believer here this morning and your conscience is afflicted by sin, don't go and try and atone for that on your own before you return to intimacy with God. You cannot. Don't tarry till you're better. Run to him with your sin now, believer. Confess it. Let him cleanse you afresh by his blood. Pray with me. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for coming to deal with our greatest problem, the greatest problem in the world, our sins. Your mercy is incredible, God. Your grace is incredible. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for the gospel. Lord Jesus, we thank you for suffering and dying in our place, for for taking all the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, for giving us your own righteousness, Lord. We give you thanks and praise.
in Jesus' name, amen.